In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. It seems fitting that on this All Saints Sunday, uh, we're forced to wrestle together with Job. It also seems somewhat appropriate that with Job we have to wrangle today on this time when we celebrate our children being baptized in the waters of baptism, being claimed as Jesus' very own. So we together as the body of Christ lay claim again to our baptisms this morning. Now you may have heard our dean throwing water on the children in front this morning, telling them to remember their baptism. We've been signed, we've been sealed in the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity, your identity as a human, is at its very core Christian. We're followers of Christ. We're brought into union with his very death and his very life, participating in all the benefits that flow from his heavenly majesty. Martin Luther and John Calvin, both in their own ways, would always encourage struggling and doubting Christians to remember their baptism, to remember that God made the redemptive move toward them first, before they made a reciprocal move back to him. I talked that way with myself and with my children in between swearing at them. <laughs> remember your baptism. And here's Job, a figure who emerges this morning from the smoke and the haze of an ancient past. It's a world so strange and, and so different than our world. Yet it seems fully appropriate on this morning to question the book of Job for an answer. For an answer to our pressing question this morning on this All Saints Sunday. What exactly does it mean uh, to be a saint. You know, Job's saint-like status is certainly on display in the first two chapters of his book. He's blameless, he's upright, he's a fearer of God. Uh, Job even makes sacrifices for his children just in case they offended God in some way. He's remarkable. He has gravitas as a human being, both in his achievements and in his character. I think we'd be drawn to Job as a man. We'd be drawn to him as a leader. But Job has no idea what's waiting for him around the corner. Well, you know the broad outline of this story, or at least these two chapters. It comes in two scenes. Now, the first scene, the accuser, the Satan, Satan, he appears before the Lord. Embrace yourself for this part. God brings up Job's name to the accuser. Have you considered my servant Job? And the accuser responds exactly like we would expect him, with accusations. Well, of course he's righteous, God. Let me just look at him. His children are above average in every respect. Everything he touches, you bless. His 401k seems to be swelling. I mean, of course he's blameless and upright. But if you struck him down and took away all of his possessions and the people that he loves, we'll see the real Job come to light. And God takes the bait. He releases Job into the hands of the accuser with a simple proviso. Don't lay a hand on him. 
And in a blink of an eye, all hell breaks loose on Job. Livestock, servants, and whore of whores, his own children, all lost in a blink of an eye, all lost in a swift moving river of destruction and deprivation and loss. So what does Job do? Job arose. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground. And this is the part that stuns us. He worshipped. He what? He worshipped. He cried out to God. He lifted his voice in faith and hope and a simple recognition that everything that he had was gift, not possession. He had no ownership over anything. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked will I return thither. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the narrator steps back from the story and tells us, and in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. End of scene one. And it's stunning. I mean, what a picture of faithfulness. What a saint Job is. Well, if you think scene one was bad, hold on to your hats because scene two is worse. The accuser comes back, and now he raises the ante in this very high-stakes game. Well, he tells God, uh, Job must have some kind of narcissistic personality disorder. He must be some sort of megalomaniac. Strike his flesh, and he'll surely deny you. Brace yourself for this. God gives the green light. God says, you can strike his flesh, just don't kill him. Well, that might sound good on first hearing, until we hear Job later lamenting the very existence of his life. In other words, there are worse things than just don't kill him. I mentioned this to the Sunrise Centers on Thursday morning. This reminds me of the old joke about being seasick. You know, the first 30 minutes of being seasick, you're afraid you're going to die. And then the last 30 minutes of being seasick, you're afraid you're not going to die. Job's heart and his mind have been afflicted in the first chapter. And now Job's body is being afflicted. He sits by the fire pit. He's covered in boils. He's scraping the boils off with a broken piece of clay off of a broken pot. If you want to know how bad the scene is, when Job's three friends first see him at a distance, they remain silent for seven days because the scene is so remarkable. It's so enormous, the shock. Even Job's wife, his poor wife, battled and bruised as she must have been too, questioned her husband's stubborn faith. Do you still persist in your integrity, Job? Just curse God and die. And here he goes again, faithful and persistent. You speak foolishly, wife, he says. Should we receive good from the hands of the Lord and not calamity? And then the narrator tells us, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips Again, we're baffled. He didn't sin with his lips. I mean, these are the easiest kinds of sins that we commit. I'm a professional at sinning with my lips. Grumbling, complaining, deceiving, dissembling. Yet through it all, Job never sinned with his lips. It's remarkable. 
You know, these first two chapters of Job, the chapters I think we're most familiar with. I mean, they're Fox's Book of Martyrs. They're Ridley and Latimer saying that we're going to set a flame in England today that'll never burn out like the sticks. They tap into our fascination with a Braveheart kind of Christianity. Colonel Chamberlain in the 20th Maine charging down Little Round Top with nothing but bayonets fixed to their muskets. We love these chapters. Job is a, he's a winner. At least he's a winner in his religion, even in his deprivation. He's a hero. He's making a good death. He's a champion of the faith. He stands unwavering upon his principles and commits himself to faith and and thanksgiving to God, even when God himself has struck a heavy blow against him. What an enormous picture of faithfulness. What a saint. But the enormity of the faith and the trust, they begin to wane. And they begin to sag under the enormity of a particular problem that Job cannot escape. You see, Job doesn't recognize God anymore. He doesn't know what God is doing. In Karl Barth's terms, Job has encountered God in a form no longer recognizable. Up is down, left is right. And the most basic questions of Job's existence has now come undone. Who are you, God? And after the Braveheart chapters in the first two chapters at the beginning of the book, the scene shifts quickly to a very different picture of Job. By the way, some 26 chapters worth of this picture of Job. I regret the day that I was born. I loathe my own life. My tears fall like rain. He terrifies and afflicts me in my dreams. I want my day in court to make my case before God. God has wronged me. God isn't good. Job's suffering is extreme, says Brevard Childs. But it's the suffering of all of God's people. You know, it's as if the weight of the suffering of God's people throughout all time make their appearance and their presence known in Job with force and with fury. There's no punches pulled. No easy answers given. No quick draw from the holster that God works all things together for his good, as if that's a quick fix to the deepest sorrows of our existence. Job is lamenting. He's complaining. He's raising his voice against the injustice of his friends, and he's raising his voice against the perceived injustice of God himself. Then we come to Job 19, where our reading is found for today on this All Saints Sunday. You know how Job 19 begins? Job asks his friend Bildad, how long are you going to torment me? And then Job cries in retort to Bildad again, know then that God has put me in the wrong, says Job. God has roused his troops and set himself against me. I mean, Job is very clear throughout these chapters about his problem. And let's be clear about it with ourselves this morning. Job's problem is with God. And he pleads for mercy from his friends. These are the verses that precede our reading this morning. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O my friends. For the hand of God has attacked me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Never satisfied with my flesh. 
And then we get to our reading. Job wants his words written down. Get me an iron stylus. Get me some clay tablets so that I can inscribe forever my case and have it written down. I want my complaint against God recorded as a witness. I mean, Job wants documented proof so that when he gets his day in court against God, he can pull out the evidence and have a case with no question. All of this vitriol, all of this venom, is what leads to the two verses that almost every Christian in the Christian tradition, at least since Handel's Messiah, knows or at least has heard. It's from the chaos and the disorder of Job's soul. It's from the darkest, the darkness of his deepest suffering, a suffering marked by doubt about God and his goodness. It's from the slew of despond that Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand on the latter day. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. It catches us off guard. You know, it doesn't flow even from the logic of the text, and it doesn't seem to flow from Job's own personal logic. It's so jolting to find these texts here that certain critical commentators on this particular text dismiss its basic sense because Job couldn't be making a statement of confession right here. Yet I remain fully convinced that this statement in Job is exactly what it sounds like off the surface account of its reading. Job is making a confession of his belief. This is Job's pleading for an arbiter. He's pleading for a redeemer, a loyal figure that can put a hand on him and put a hand on God, someone to stand and to plead his case. His case against whom? His his case against God. I need a redeemer. I need a lawyer. I need someone who will stand in for me. And, and it's not immediately clear in this text who the redeemer is for Job. But the next phrase of this statement forces us to identify this figure as the sovereign God himself. I might lose you here. I'm going to talk about Bible and language. So downshift to the fourth gear for one second. All of our texts, and this is fine, but all of our texts say, for at the last he will stand upon the earth. Can I get geeky with you with language a little bit this morning? I don't think this is an adverb. I don't think this is a temporal phrase, at the last time. I think this phrase is a noun. It's a substantive, you Englishy people out there. I think Job is saying not at the last time, but the last one will stand upon the dust. What does he mean, the last one? The last one refers to the lordship and the sovereignty of God himself. The redeemer, the last one, will stand upon the dust. Why upon the dust? It's that material of our world that witnesses to yours and to my human frailty. Do you remember what the psalmist says? He knows our frame. He knows that we're just dust. The Redeemer, the Sovereign One, the Last One, stands upon the dust of our human frailty in complete and absolute triumph. And here's Job, clinging to the ground, pounding on the dust, 
struggling to hold his breath as the waves of life and soul and even God beat down on him. And it's Job in this state who refuses to let go of his future hope and confidence, even if his skin might leave his bones. I shall see God. I refuse by God's grace to let go of God's promises, even when from my vantage point, the problem seems to be with God himself. I won't reduce God to my understanding of him. Death will not have the last word. God will have the last word. And that word will be vindication. Vindication in his son. Vindication in our redeemer. Vindication in our last one, our lawyer, our advocate, our everything. Oh, Job, what a saint you are in this moment. Clinging to the promises of God stubbornly refusing to let go of future hope, even when the halo of Job from the first two chapters seems to have worn off to non-existence. So what makes a saint a saint on this All Saints Sunday? A stubborn and a gracious refusal to let go of the promises of God, even when life and body and soul and God himself don't make sense to us anymore. Or in the words we just confessed a few minutes ago, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.